Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Uh, if we do a prophecy update tonight, it'll take infinitum because there's so much stuff going on. But all I know is Israel has started working on uh, an attack on Damascus the last 24 hours. All of Damascus is on high alert. The Turkish uh, army has moved into the northern part of uh, Syria, trying to take out the Kurds without the American influence there anymore because of Trump's promise to pull the troops out. It's left uh, an open corridor for Russia, Turkey, Syria, and Iran to basically do what they want. And Israel is not going to wait to um, wait for them to attack them. I think they're going to do the first strike, first strike policy, which leaves Damascus at a very vulnerable point with so many Russians and Syrians and Turkish um, and Iranian forces in there. Maybe looking at uh, Damascus, uh, Isaiah 17 prophecy coming up, along with the Ezekiel 38, 39 scenario, especially with Saudi Arabia playing the, the nice guy card, telling everybody to just calm down and they're going to follow a UN injunction. And that's what Ezekiel 39, 38, 39 says, Sheba and Dedan, um, basically, they just criticized Gog and Magog for going into Israel. So that's what's happening today. So much to pray about, but we're here to do Ephesians 6, the armor of God. And some of it, uh, of course, it's implication for the last days at all times, for all Christians at all times. But I think for us, it means so much more because we see these things up ahead. So let's pray and ask the Lord for his wisdom and his grace. Lord, in the name of Jesus, thank you for tonight. May you bless your word, Lord God. It is your word. It is your truth. Thank you, Lord, that you're the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, that although we may not have a full grasp of the truth, as we draw near to you, we can know more of the truth. We can have your life, and we can know the way. And we thank you that tonight, by your Spirit, we'll be able to draw near to you, and you promise to draw near to us. Please show us through these pages, Lord, what you have for us tonight. Make them real, Lord, to us. Make them applicable in our lives. And Lord, help us to do them by your grace and your spirit. We ask you for everyone here in this room, for those who couldn't make it, for those who uh, just could not make the road because of the, the difficulty tonight, we ask you to be with them. And may this message, Lord, will go out to different parts of people's hearts and minds, and they will be able to draw near to your word again. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy. And we ask these things in Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6. The armor of God. And this, of course, was something that I was asked to, to preach on, and I'm gladly do it because it's a very important, it's a very important topic for us to discuss and remember, but it's so applicable to our lives because this is the state of the Christian. This is a state of every Christian, is to be involved and engaged in a spiritual battle. In Ephesians, this is just for recap. In Ephesians, you have six chapters. In each of the chapters, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit. In each one of the chapters, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit. It is not like Romans 8 
or First Corinthians 2 or First Corinthians 12, where Paul directly speaks about the person of the Holy Spirit. These chapters are, as if you would say, Paul mentions them in passing, meaning that he's talking about a certain subject and then he brings up the Holy Spirit in relation to what he's talking about. In the six chapters in Ephesians, he mentions the Holy Spirit, one aspect of the Holy Spirit in each one of the chapters. Not a direct topic in a sense he's not talking about the Spirit, he's talking about something else, but then he brings the Holy Spirit into it. Chapter 1, he talks about our place in Jesus, seated in and seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. And it says that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the word sealed with the Holy Spirit, it has a lot of meaning behind it. But the basic meaning is, if somebody were to buy, in those days, were to buy large amounts of vegetables, you would go to the market and buy potatoes. And you would buy 10 sacks of potatoes, and you would put a, they would put a seal on those bags with your name on it or your family's name on it, and those bags were sealed for you. That means you were the owner of it, and then at some point over the next few days, they will deliver them to your home. You didn't take them home with you. It would have been hard to take 10 sacks of potatoes with you home, but they will deliver them to you. They were sealed, and at a later point, they were delivered to your home. You would probably get one of them delivered first, and that was called the deposit. That was called the deposit. And that's what Paul mentions, the Holy Spirit is a, a deposit, right? A deposit, uh, an assurance that we're going to be Him. We're going to be His. But each one of us are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have a guaranteed because the Holy Spirit is in us. He is a promise of the future world to come. If you want to know, if you want to know what heaven is like, fellowship with the Spirit gives you an idea of what heaven would be like. He is a deposit, a down payment of the eternal life that we're going to have in Jesus in eternity. We can enjoy that today. Chapter 2, Jesus. Uh, because of Jesus, there's now unity between Jew and Gentile, and we have access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. That's chapter 2, right? Yeah. The access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, to be strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man. To be strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man. So as a Christian, if we feel weak, if there's weaknesses in our lives, in our minds, in our will, in our emotions, in the way we think, in our conscience, if we're weak in those things, as oftentimes we can be, then we need the Holy Spirit. He is there to strengthen us in the inner man. Then chapter 4 is unity. The unity of the Spirit between believers. Forgiving one another, helping one another, and that, that way we have the unity of the Spirit. We're to have it because the Holy Spirit is in each and every one of us, but we're also to work for the unity. That means we're to have the bond of peace. We're to do all that we can to forge peace between believers at, at, at all costs in order to have that unity. And of course, the unity is not, uh, it, the unity is based on the Spirit, right? So we have the Spirit, we will have unity with that person. We were to have unity with those who have the Spirit. You can't have unity with those who don't have the Spirit. That's the point of Paul. Chapter 5 is being filled with the Spirit. Singing hymns and melody in your heart to the Lord, in your heart with other believers. Right? With other believers. In a sense, Paul is saying you can't be filled with the Spirit alone. 
you have to be filled with the Spirit with other believers. Otherwise, you're just spending time singing to no one or with no one, basically. You have to make melody in your heart to the Lord with one another. Sing with one another. And then chapter 6, of course, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God in light of the spiritual battle we're going to face. Now, when we read Ephesus, Ephesians, we're to remember those things. The Spirit is not the main point, but is an aspect of Paul's writing to the churches. So if you need unity, if you need strength in the inner man, if you need encouragement, if you need access to God, if you need to be reminded of the seal of the Holy Spirit, these are things that we're to remember when we read Ephesians. Now, when we read Ephesians, we have to remember where did this church come from? Where did the church come from? And you can see on the screen there, Ephesus was a major, major city in the Roman Empire. This is a way of recap, so we keep track of um, where we are. So we did just don't read the chapter and go, I don't even know what it means. What, what, what's, what happened? Where did these guys come from? It was a free city. It was, they thrived on freedom. They had a senate. They had assembly. And they had major, 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 it was a major center of occultic practice. Not only the worshiper of Artemis, we'll talk about that in a moment, known as Diana, um, known uh, by, by the Romans as Diana, the Greeks call her Artemis, but it was a center of astrology, sorcery, exorcism, every form of magic and dark things involved in that city. And when we read Acts in a couple of minutes, you'll see what was, uh, what was Paul up against, what the believers were up against. When you realize that, then Ephesians 6, dealing with the armor of God and who our real enemy is, makes a whole lot of sense. Paul is not writing to, to them in a vacuum. He's writing to them at something that they knew. And so it was a major center of worship uh, to false gods and deities. We know from Moses and Paul, he says that uh, uh, an idol is not just an idol. I mean, an idol is an idol. It's a dumb idol, basically, the word is. It basically means can't do anything. But what's behind the idol, Paul and Moses says, is demonic powers. Demonic powers. And this was behind the worship in Ephesus. Major form of exorcism. Major forms of dark magic. And you'll see in a moment. And this is where it's located. Right in the, what was Turkey today? right between Athens and Turkey, right between, between today would have been the area near the Aegean Sea, right across you would see Turkey and you would see Greece, major place today, especially Turkey and the persecution of Christians today. But Ephesus was a large city, incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful, incredibly influential, but God had a, a desire to put a, his own church there, his own people there. And by the way, when you read Ephesus, when you read about Ephesus in the Bible, it takes a whole lot of place in the New Testament. There's a letter to the Ephesians we're going to read tonight. There's also the letter of Jesus to the church of Ephesus in Revelation. First Timothy is written to Timothy as the pastor of the church of Ephesus, as the pastor of the church of Ephesus. We know that John the Apostle was a pastor there. Uh, at the church of Ephesus before he passed away. He's actually buried there. 
in that area. He came back to Ephesus even after he was in, um, in, in, um, in Patmos when he was in prison when he wrote the book of Revelation. Ephesus has a lot to do with the New Testament. Very influential, and it was a very influential city in the Roman Empire. This is what it would have looked like if we... This is just a drawing, an illustration. Beautiful city, right by the ocean. You could see uh, how it would have been a port city. Incredibly influential architect, writings, poetry, arts, but not just regular arts, also the, the magic arts. A drawing of what the city would have looked like uh, if you were to walk down the street. And by the way, uh, there's um, many places where you can go today um, in Ephesus. They've excavated about 40% of the city now. Uh, so it's quite an amazing place to go if you like archaeology. About 40% of the city has been, uh, the ancient city has been uh, excavated. And they've found all kinds of stuff. Bathhouses, brothels. They found uh, places of worship. they places of sexual worship. Uh, an agora, meaning a marketplace. The Temple of Artemis different temples to different gods, uh, magic places, a giant theater, close to about maybe 50,000 people could have sat there. That's huge for the time. And uh, that's what the amphitheater would have looked like. And this is where they dragged the Christians in, in Acts chapter 19 because Paul had made such, the, uh, they blamed Paul for the fact that they couldn't make any more money because people had abandoned sorcery and had get, turned their magic books and they weren't buying little trinkets anymore and they were losing money because the gospel had reached that area. This is a nice picture of the excavation area. This is the front of the city. This is, of course, Artemis. And she would have looked more like this. All those little those, uh, protrusions from the, uh, from the idol, they, they believed that uh, she had come down from heaven she was like a queen of heaven, coming down from heaven, and uh, she, had, she was the mother of that area, so they, they had uh, the representation of breast on, on, the, on the idol, meaning that many people was like their mother. And uh, so interesting picture there. This is the, the, the part of the temple where she was worshipped. There's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's all that's left. Kind of reminds me what the Lord says, you know, about ancient idols. They come to nothing, absolutely nothing thriving worship center at one point. Uh, this is what the replica of is today, of the temple to Artemis. This is where it used to be. This is the, the, the replica of what they've done to it now. And these, of course, they found lots of brothels, lots of bathhouses. I'll leave it up to your imagination what was happening there. Uh, so it was a very sexual driven city, a very full of sorcery, magic, wickedness, darkness, rich wealth, power, influence. Sounds like a lot of cities in, in the United States today. And so let's turn to Acts very quickly before we get started. Acts 19. Acts 19. What happened there? Why had, how did Paul get there? How did the Christians begin there? In Acts 19, I'm going to skip the first few verses. I'm going to skip the first seven verses because it just deals with Paul's. When he, well, Paul the Apostle, when he gets there, he meets disciples there. And he asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit, and they had not received the Holy Spirit. They hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit yet. And Paul was able to baptize them in the Spirit, was able to pray for them, and they were baptized in the Spirit, and they follow the Lord. They was able to baptize them, and they went on because they only heard of the baptism of John, right? 
and uh, Paul laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they prophesied, spoke in tongues. So let's look at verse 8. And when he entered the synagogue, Paul, uh, and continued speaking there for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, and when some became hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, that was what they all used to call Christians, the way, before the multitude he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. So Paul went there, and he began to, as he, his custom was, to go to the synagogue, to go to the Jews who had in common the one true God, and they began to reason with them and talk to them, and some were hardened, and some listened. And they went to the school of Tyrannus, which was uh, basically a place where the disciples were going there, and they reasoned daily. And Paul was with, doing that for about two years. By the way, the name Tyrannus has been historically, archaeologically proven that it was a very common name in the, in the area of Ephesus, a very common name in Ephesus in the first century. So when you read it just in, uh, as, as a whole, as a historical book, you know, if it would have been some name like Mike or, you know, Johnson or something like that, that would have been a little bit odd. But the name Tyrannus is actually a very, uh, a very key word because it gives validity to the scriptures. It was a common name. You know, it's like saying 21st century American would have been you know, Joe or, or John. Paul does miracles, verse 11. And the miracles were such that even they're called or, or, uh, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that the handkerchief and aprons that were carried to his body to the sick, and the disease left him, and the evil spirits went out. It was such an amazing thing that God was doing, that even with Paul, when he was working or wearing, they took the, those handkerchief or those sweatbands, and they were, the people would take them, and they'd take them to the, the sick, and they would be healed. And even uh, those with evil spirits left them. It was such an extraordinary, and the Bible makes it clear, it's extraordinary um, what God was doing. God was doing this. So it's letting you know that it wasn't Paul just subjectively doing this. It was God doing it, and he was using Paul. It was so extraordinary, there's no such thing ever mentioned like that in the New Testament. It only happened once, and the idea is that Paul couldn't even do it again. It was something that only God can do, and only when God did it. It wasn't Paul basically taking off his, his sweatbands and putting it on people. It was simply God doing it. It was so extraordinary. But you can also understand why. It was a place of great sorcery and magic. And some of the Jewish exorcists went from place to place, attempting to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches, and even some of the sons of Sceva, Jewish priests, were doing this. This was very common at the time of uh, in Ephesus, Jewish exorcism. And the way Jewish exorcism would work is they would try to find the name of a demon, of an evil spirit, and if you get the name, then you would have control. So they were always trying to figure out the name of, a, uh, the name of that demon to try to have control over it. This is Jewish exorcism. Now, in Jewish exorcist history, they go back to Solomon. They believe that Solomon uh, was one of the key principal characters in trying to cast demons out. Always goes back to Solomon. But anyway, that was one of the things that they were doing. And the sons of Sceva here, they tried to do it in the name of Jesus. And the demons said, 
Paul we know, Jesus we know, but who are you? And they jumped on those sons of Sceva, these Jewish priests, the sons, and they beat them up pretty bad. But that was the, that was the realm of, of, of Ephesus. It was a very supernaturally charged type of environment. Mystical powers, Jewish exorcism, spiritism, evil spirits, exorcism, worship of Diana. Uh, but then God was doing some extraordinary things. And verse 17, And this became known to all both Jews and Gentiles who lived in Ephesus, and the fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many also who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all, and they accounted up to the price of them and was found to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Those are hundreds and thousands and thousands of dollars today, uh, depending on the price of silver and things like that, plus inflation, first century, 20th century, it's later, the price of silver, plus inflation, we're talking almost million dollars. I mean, this is, this is a lot of money. They burned the books, people becoming believers. They were leaving the, the practices of sorcery, of magic, the occult, and they began to burning them. As they began to trust in Jesus, they were turning their back on the evil spirits. So this was no ordinary thing. This was something God, Jesus had basically turned this world right side up. The Ephesian world was right side up now. And of course, when Jesus steps in, there's no power that can withstand it. However, there's, some of them are not going to like it. Right? Whenever God is working strong on the behalf of some, the enemy will come and try to thwart the work of God. Not that he's stronger than the, than, than the Lord, but he can only try to stop the believers who are being used by the Lord. Or he can't stop God, but he will try to stop the believers who are doing the work of the Lord. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. It means that it was overcoming evil. It was overcoming the wickedness of the city. And people were getting saved. They were going back to their husbands, to their wives. They stopped practicing magic. They stopped visiting the brothels. They stopped worshiping at the Diana Center. They stopped worshiping those things. Verse 21, now after these things were, um, were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and, uh, and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I'll go to Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose a small disturbance, no small disturbance, no small disturbance. That means it was a big, big disturbance. It's a funny way that it was translated. It was no small disturbance. Yeah, it was a big one. Concerning the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. <laughs> no little business. He brought big business, right? And he gathered those workmen, similar trades, and said, Men, you know what our prosperity depends on this business. The shrines, the icons. By the way, in Ephesus, they found this little inscription. It was interesting. It was made by what they called the keeper of the temple the keeper of the temple and basically it, it was basically a silversmith basically working in the temple of diana going back to the century first century in ephesus that says that in scripture i don't read ancient greek but basically says that uh, this was dedicated to that temple 
made by such and such silversmith and our practice makes us a lot of money and they were very wealthy and that's what that says that's a, that's a famous inscription that was found in the area of ephesus meaning that who whoever did this work for the temple and they were saying we have a lot of money we make tons and tons of money by serving at the temple and making there was a silversmith and it's very similar to what you find here demetrius saying you know how much money we used to make when business was good now business stinks because People are getting saved. They're not coming to the temple. And he gathered all those silver uh, uh, workmen, similar trays, and said, our prosperity depends on this business. That's exactly what that stone says, that they made their money by basically selling trinkets of idols and worship idols. Where are we at? Verse 26, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away considerably number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours has fallen to disrepute, but also in the temple, the great goddess Artemis is regarded as worthless, and that she won, uh, and that she, she whom all of Asia and the world worships, would even be dethroned from her magnificence. Magnificence, basically. They were saying, she's in big trouble. <laughs> no one's coming. She's, she's our goddess. She's the goddess of all this Asia, uh, basically Asia Minor, Turkey area. And there's no, um, you know, she's not going to be magnified anymore. She's going to be dethroned by this Paul who say that she's worthless. By the way, these are papyrus. They're called the Ephesian papyrus or magic papyrus that came from Egypt to Ephesus. These are incantations. These are... Um, uh, basically curses and spells. And they found thousands and thousands of these scrolls from Alexandria all the way to Ephesus. Basically, they're called the magic papyrus or Ephesian papyrus. Uh, these were the things that they were burning here. Uh, it, 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 they found them all over the place there. Basically, worship Artemis, curse this, spell this. This is from Alexandria all the way to Ephesus. This is exactly what history shows, exactly what the Bible says. And they heard this, verse 28, and they were filled with rage and they began crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, literally Diana. And the city was filled with confusion and they rushed into the theater. Remember that theater that I showed you? Dragging along in the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples won't let him. They would have killed him. And also some of the, uh, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent them and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what cause had come together. Remember they had assemblies, they had a senate, they had an independent government. It was so out of control because of this shouting. Great is Diana. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward and having motion with his hands, Alexander was intended to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized he was a Jew, a single cry arose among them that they, that they shouted for about two hours, greatest Artemis uh, of the Ephesians. Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. And this turns into anti-Semitism. Not only anti-Christians, but now anti-Jew. Exactly what happens in the world today. Persecution of Jews and Christians. Always 
by pagan religions, by the government. Now it's pagan religions mixed in with the government, the Senate, the assembly, in the theater, trying to figure out how we're going to get rid of this because we're running out of money. We're running out of money because, you know, they're becoming Christians and Christians don't spend their money in such, such silly things. And when they recognize, oh, verse 35, and after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? That, I, that word right there, the guardian of the temple, that's what's in this inscription right here, the guardian of the temple, right? It's talking about how they made a lot of money and there's a guardian of the temple and it is ex exactly what history shows, is exactly what the Bible says. Basically, at the, at the end, they didn't kill all the Christians because they said, well, if Diana's God, then we need to just calm down and not do anything rash. And then they, Demetrius, the craftsman who were with them, has a complaint, then he should go to the courts and hear it out and all sorts of things. And they didn't end up killing the Christians there, but then there, but there was a definitely division between who the Christians were, who they were following, and who the Ephesians were following. There was a clear division that when people got saved, they no longer practiced witchcraft, sorcery, and things like that. And uh, verse 40, For indeed we're in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affairs, since there's no real cause for it, and this correction shall be unable to account for all this disorderly gathering. And after the saying, they dismissed the assembly. Basically said, look, she, if she's our God, then she's going to remain our God. If that's, is that, if that's what these guys want to do, let them do it. We're not going to cause a riot. It's going to be a big deal. So they just leave it alone. Cooler heads prevail. But then it began, that distinction, the, the Ephesus. In Ephesus, the Christians were, were different, and they were marked, and they were uh, basically, um, the, the, the city of Ephesus knew who they were, and they began to really bring a, a division between who the world was and who Christians were. And so now Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians. All right, that's why we need the background to understand Christians were Christians. And this is what happened in Ephesus. The world turned against them. There was persecution. It was stopped shortly after. But then the battle remained, right? Now the battle was between the forces of evil Artemis and the forces of the Lord, God's people, the gospel in that city. It was a big clash and God left this church there. Now in chapter 20, verse 31, I don't, you don't have to turn to it, but Paul says to the Ephesian elders that for three years he wept bitterly. He went from house to house sharing with them with tears uh, about what could happen to the Ephesians, right? The wolves that will come upon, uh, among them. There will be wolves from among themselves coming and trying to deceive people. And Paul uh, would basically encourage them not to give up and to be alert and to know that these things were going to happen even from among them. Savages, wolves will come, not sparing the flock. For three years, Paul stayed in Ephesus, the longest church or the longest place he ever stayed in any mission field, three years. So it's quite a bit of work by Paul, quite a bit of thing what happened, and quite a bit of warning to the Ephesian church that Paul left them to the elders to say, 
This is what's going to happen. You need to be alert. I warned you for three years. He's now on his way to Rome. I'm sorry, on his way to Jerusalem, and he's going to be in prison. But he leaves the Ephesian elders with a emphasis, with a very uh, task to do. Take care of the people, teach them the word, and watch out for these false teachers, these wolves that are going to come in, even from among you. They're not going to spare the flock. So then he writes his letter. He writes his letter to Ephesus. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Now we can get to it. Seems like a long thing to do, but it is much necessary to understand why. So why does Paul speak about the Spirit so much in, uh, in Ephesians? Right? Six chapters, six mentions of the Spirit. Why was there a need? Yes. Why? That's right. It was an environment of spiritual environment. Right? They knew about it. Why is such an emphasis between Jew and Gentile coming together as one man in Christ Jesus to the Ephesian church? Why is there such an why does Paul remind them that there's no division? There shouldn't be any division among you Gentiles and you Jews. You guys should come together as one body and worship the Lord. Well, look what happened in chapter 19. <laughs> they're persecuting the Jews, they're persecuting Christians. You know, they had to become one in Christ. There shouldn't be a division because the real enemy was not each other. The real enemy was the world, but behind the world was the devil, right? Verse 10, finally, chapter 6, and I guess we could say the same thing, chapter 6, verse 10, finally, after all this, 30 minutes of background, we can get to it. And it's really interesting, you can make a case that Paul wrote five chapters and nine verses just to make this point. That's what that means. Finally, after all that I've said for five chapters and nine verses, this is what I wanted to say. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Amen. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. If you have a Bible, I would underline the word stand because that's going to come up quite a bit. Stand. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world's forces of this, dark, of, of, of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist, or another translation has it, withstand, it's the same word, withstand, the evil day, in the evil day, and having done everything to stand, stand firm, uh, having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, verse 14, therefore having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. When you become a Christian, two, thing, two wonderful things happened to all of us when we became Christians. We realized we had a brand new family and wonderful friends in the Lord. It's a wonderful thing to know. When you come to Jesus, you become a Christian, you have a whole new family. And lots of wonderful friends the Lord has given you. But the disturbing thing is you realize you have a lot of enemies all of a sudden. Right? You have wonderful friends and family, a whole new family, and a whole lot of enemies. It's a delightful thing. It's a beautiful thing. But it's also a disturbing thing. Right? A lot of enemies in the world. And one of the things Christians always ask me, brand new Christians always ask me, what about my friends? 
right? Charles Spurgeon was asked this question, so I guess we're not too far off. Charles Spurgeon was asked by a, a young girl that came to the Lord, and she said, Pastor Charles Spurgeon, what do I do? I become a Christian. What about all my friends? And he said, don't worry, they'll give you up soon. <laughs> and that's very true. They'll give you up soon. The Christian life here is described as a struggle. Wrestle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The word wrestle there has to do, or struggle, has to do with hand-to-hand combat. Hand-to-hand combat. It is not a distance conflict. You know, like, well, if I just keep him at an arm's length. It is a hand-to-hand combat. Our wrestling is not against flesh and blood. Our hand-to-hand fighting is not against flesh and blood. And every Christian will know it sooner or later. Sooner rather than later, I should say, nowadays, right? If you had a peaceful life before you became a Christian, that's probably because the world and the enemy counted you as a friend, Mm -hmm. counted you as an ally. You become a Christian, you now enjoy the peace of God. You now enjoy the peace of God, but the prince of this world is now declared war against you. The prince of this world, the devil, has now counted you as a traitor, as an enemy. And although we enjoy the peace of God, we now have a real enemy who counts us as traitors, a real enemy who rules this world, an enemy whom you live in his territory, who now sees you as a traitor, as an enemy, and wants to get rid of you. So you enjoy the peace of God, but you also know you're up against something, right? And our strength, it says here in verse 10, Our strength is not our strength. Our strength cannot be our strength. Our strength is in the Lord only, right? Weak Christians, weak Christians are those who rely on themselves. Weak Christians are the ones who rely on themselves. We often think of the opposite, right? We think of the weak Christian, the one that, well, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to wait on the Lord. It's like, come on, man, just do it. Do it yourself, man. Just get out there and do it. That is actually weakness. In Christian terms, that is actually weakness. We have to do it in the Lord's strength. We'll never win unless, Paul says, in the strength of his might. In the strength of his might, right? God has never promised, and you'll never find that in the Bible, that he will take you out of the battle. The only time you'll get to be out of the battle is when you die and go to be with Jesus. That's the only time God will say, come home. But he'll never say to us, no, don't worry about the battle. You don't have to do it today. He'll never take us out of the battle, but he's promised that in the battle, he'll give us the victory. He promised that in the battle, he'll give us the victory. He's given us all the weapons that we need. And so you can win. And so soldiers are called to be strong in the Lord. So as a soldier... Right? So Christians are, are named different things in the Bible. Right? One of the names, one of the illusions, one of the illustrations is a soldier. And a soldier never retreats. A soldier never retreats. It either stands to defend the territory and position, or it moves forward as his commander leads him forward. Remember the children of Israel? Sometimes they had a camp and stayed for a while, and then the enemy would be around them, but the Lord would protect them. And sometimes the cloud would move, and then they had to move, pick up their tent, and they had to go. So that would be the Christian life. Now here is something the Christian is called to do, is to stand. Stand, right? So I wrote four things to remember 
when we're called into this battle. Recognize your weakness. We have to recognize our weakness. What is our weakness? That we rely on ourselves, right? Recognize that weakness, right? Unless you recognize your weakness, you won't know his strength. Unless you recognize your weakness, you won't know his strength. Recognize that you have a tendency to rely on yourself. And I'm, I'm more than all of you guys, right? I have to remember to rely on his strength because the first thing I do is to rely on my strengths, what I know, my experience, whatever it is. I know how to do that. Done it lots of times. <laughs> Been a Christian 20-some years. I know how to do this, right? Wrong, done, <laughs> right? Recognize your weakness. Secondly, remember to be dependent. Remember to be dependent on his might, on his might, right? Um, some Christians, you know, they lack the desire to study the Bible. They lack the desire to pray or relate to other believers. And they become independent. They become isolated in and in a, basically an island unto themselves. And that's not going to cut it. You can't make it on your own. Right? Study the scriptures, relate to the Lord, pray, and with one another. Thirdly, be disciplined. Be disciplined. Meaning that... Be strong, but keep going strong, in a sense. Go on being strong. Amen. That's what is described here, uh, where it says, finally, be strong, present, continuous. Continually be strong. How can you continually be strong? That's right. That requires some discipline, doesn't it? It requires for you to stay in it. It requires for you to continue in it. You don't just fight one battle and, okay, that's it. God gave me the victory. Hallelujah. That's it. I'm done. It's a continual being strong, right? Be strong in the Lord. We need to. And not, lastly, don't be sloppy, right? Don't be sloppy. Amen. Put on the whole armor. Put on the whole armor, right? Verse 11, put on the full armor, don't be sloppy. Don't put one in two and don't like the other ones. You know, I like the helmet of salvation, but I don't want to have the sword of the spirit. I like the breastplate of righteousness. I'll skip the gospel. Right? Put on the full armor. Don't be sloppy. When we get sloppy is we took one and don't like the other. We put one and, and forget the other. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.